This is BayCare Health Chat, another podcast from BayCare Health System. Welcome to BayCare Health Chat. I'm Scott Webb, and I invite you to listen as we discuss male incontinence, a condition that's not as common in men as it is in women, but one that can affect quality of life and overall health. And joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Balin. He's a urologist in the BayCare Health System. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. We're talking about urinary incontinence and the different forms and treatments that are available. As we get rolling here, how common is urinary incontinence in men? Urinary incontinence, you know, statistically, is not as common in men as it is in women. I think in men, it's roughly about 8%. And certainly more common would be just generalized urinary tract symptoms or perhaps overactive bladder. And that does creep up closer to the 45 to 50% range for the urinary tract symptoms. But incontinence itself is a little bit more rare of a, a problem. Yeah, that's interesting to know. 8% seems pretty low. You know, I, I guess that's why we have the experts on because I assumed it was going to be much higher, but good to know that it's relatively low. And when we talk about the kinds of evaluation that you do, what kind of evaluation can a patient expect during the workup of his incontinence? Easily, you got to start with the history and physical. Get the patient's story, do an exam, and, and really get their medical and surgical history. Certainly, more common amongst men with incontinence would be a surgical history regarding their prostate, particularly uh, prostatectomy. And this is largely for cancer survivors. So that uh, subsect of men has a much higher risk of urinary incontinence, usually stress urinary incontinence. Also, in the initial evaluation, when they come into the office, I'll be considering things like an ultrasound to make sure they empty their bladder successfully, perhaps a renal bladder ultrasound, or even a cystoscopy, which is a camera up the urethra where the male pees out of to evaluate the prostate and the bladder and the anatomy there. We also have some things to do the physiology rather than the anatomy. And in terms of physiology and the function, that would be a urodynamics test to kind of tell me the interplay between the brain function and the bladder function and really what's going on with that bladder function. Yeah, and it sounds like the evaluation and workup is pretty comprehensive, which is good to know. And you mentioned stress urinary incontinence there. Let's talk about the treatment options for the two main types, urgency incontinence and then, of course, stress urinary incontinence as well. And I'll throw in the third one, overflow incontinence, just as a, something that I'm always thinking about. So for urgency incontinence, this is generally something associated with overactive bladder and what we call urgency. You know, if you're sitting in a movie theater watching a movie and you have to go to the bathroom, generally most of us can wait a little while before we got to run off. And some of us can't. And if we try to wait, we'll end up leaking our pants. And that would be classified as urgency incontinence. So usually after the workup and we've proven that's the issue, generally we start with some medications, just oral pills. And there's a couple different classes that we can try. And if not, then there's second, third, fourth line treatments that can be pretty successful. Everything ranging from pelvic floor physical therapy all the way up to procedures and surgeries. That is a whole spectrum of treatments to kind of keep it broad. With regards to stress urinary incontinence, that's usually, you know, the stress maneuvers, the the cough, the sneeze, or the laugh. And generally speaking, that's going to be some sort of procedure or surgery, whether it's a pelvic floor sling or a artificial urinary sphincter would be the most common answers for those problems. Yeah, and you mentioned the the third type to be on the lookout for as well. Yeah, the overflow incontinence, that's actually one of the more dangerous types. Yeah, imagine a, a bowl of water and you keep pouring water into it and into it. At some point, the bowl is going to overflow. And that, that same concept can happen with your bladder. 
And that's the type that can really cause kidney problems, repeat infections, and worsening bladder function. So if the patient isn't emptying his bladder, that needs to be caught on the first evaluation. And then we have to talk about how do you get the urine out? And that's with various catheter procedures or medications even to, to try to assist in that way. When a patient first comes in and I'm, I'm collecting that story from them, I'm trying to see which category do they fall, or maybe it's a mix of a couple different ones. Sometimes you can have pieces of each uh, type of incontinence. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, is there some crossover or sort of hybrid, a mixing of the different types? It sounds like there is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for example, a patient who had his prostate removed and now has stress incontinence can certainly develop bladder dysfunction and urinary urge incontinence as well. So then you need to kind of see which one bothers the patient more. Maybe we start with medications to address the urgency. And if we're still having stress incontinence, how do we address that moving forward? So you kind of have to take it apart piece by piece. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I want to ask you about artificial urinary sphincters. How do those work exactly? Yeah, this is a pretty neat invention. It's actually a prosthetic device. It's you know made of plastic, uh, silicone, and, and you implant three different pieces all under the skin. And the most important piece is the, the sphincter itself that looks like a little... Oh, I don't know, an inflatable donut that encircles the urethra. And it's placed kind of in the area called the perineum, which is the area between the scrotum and the anus. And it encircles the urethra and will act as the external sphincter, which no longer functions in many of our stress incontinence patients. And you control the sphincter through a pump. And this goes down in the scrotum next to the testicles. And you, you train the patient to squeeze the pump, not their testicle. And you can inflate and deflate this sphincter based on when they need to urinate. And so when you pump it properly, the sphincter will relax. And it will now opens up the urethra and you can have passage of urine. And when you want to be dry, which is the majority of your day and night, right, then it will stay closed. What's the relationship between prostate cancer surgery, urinary incontinence, and sexual dysfunction? Well, that's a good one. So the nerves to the penis, and the sphincter for that matter, are very closely related to the prostate itself. And so when an individual has prostate cancer, one of the more common treatments is complete removal of the prostate, and oftentimes the nerves right next to it. And even with nerve-sparing procedures, you can still have damage to that. So the recovery rate, for example, for erections, for erectile dysfunction, ranges really anywhere from 47 to 60 percent at about a year. So a good subsect of surgical patients still have severe or, or moderate to severe erectile dysfunction following surgery. And with that also goes the urinary dysfunction, meaning stress incontinence, because it's really disrupting that natural sphincter, that natural urethra. So these patients can have leakage at any point in the day, but particularly with stress maneuvers, or even just during sex, what we call climacteria. So that's a little bit more of a niche problem. Doctors, we wrap up here. When it comes to incontinence, whether it's the types, treatment, uh, you know, artificial urinary sphincters, what are your take-home messages? You know, with regard to urination in general, it, no matter what your degree of bother is or, or your personal situation or your, your medical history, I think it's important to remember that there is a treatment that's appropriate for you. And, and this is not to mean that you're going to go into the doctor and all he's going to say is you need surgery. What I'm saying is there's a wide range of minimally invasive to completely non-invasive treatments to more aggressive options that can help your urinary symptoms and your incontinence. Uh, so don't give up hope. You know, talk to your doctor, talk to your primary care specialist or see a urologist, specifically one familiar with the treatment of male urinary incontinence, and talk through the options and see which one is right for you. 
I mean, that's just great advice because uh, I think we all as patients and doctors and nurses are patients, of course, as well. You know, we all want options. So we want to know that there's a thorough evaluation and workup being done, that we're in the hands of professionals, experts who, who specialize in these types of things. And then, of course, ultimately, we want to know that we have options and we pick the right option, you know, working with our doctors, the right option for us. So, doctor, thanks so much for your time today. This was educational and fun and you stay well. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And to learn more about men's health services and all the services at BayCare, please visit BayCare.org. And that wraps up this episode of BayCare Health Chat. Always remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other BayCare podcasts so we can share the wealth of information from our experts together. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well. Stay well.